Okay, uh, welcome everyone to uh, the 100 Pounders special focus meet over Overeaters Anonymous meeting. Today is the 11th of January 2023, and our speaker is Denise Q. Denise came into the room circa 2006. She's from Waterford City, and uh, where she resides to, to this day. So, Denise, please give us your experience, strength, and hope. Thanks very much, Noel. Uh, my name is Denise, grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. I recovered for today, one day at a time, uh, thanks to a higher power in my life, this fellowship and this programme. Um, and I am most definitely a compulsive overeater of the hopeless and chronic variety. Um, I don't remember a time when I didn't have an unhealthy relationship with food, even as a very young child. Um, I stole food. I stole food at home. Um, I stole food in shops. Um, I stole money to buy food. Um, and there would have been the typical stuff that would have appealed to a child, the sweets and the treats and that kind of stuff. Um, I grew up in a house where, you know, I had two very good, decent, kind, loving parents. However, alcoholism was um, a factor in both of their lives. Neither of them were alcoholic, but they both came from alcoholic backgrounds. Um, all of my father's siblings, with one exception, uh, would have been alcoholic. My mother's father was an alcoholic and my mother was um, violently anti-drink um, as a result. So I, while I didn't have the direct experience um, and they didn't have... Um, the disease in that sense we had a lot of the isms in the house i grew up with a lot of those isms um food would have been something that was quite controlled in our house and now i know i wouldn't have known it at the time but i can see now that my mother had her own issues with food uh, the irony i often think of this my goodness the irony was my mother was overweight when i was growing up and i was very ashamed of having a fat mother um, and little did I know that the day would come when I would far, far surpass her in terms of being overweight. She would have been a moderately overweight woman. Um, I, uh, at the height of my addiction and at the height of my weight, would have been morbidly, morbidly obese. Um, I never felt anything other than fat even as a child. And I look at photographs of myself as a child now, and I wasn't a fat child. I was a big child. You know, I was tall, um, but I wasn't overweight, but I always felt I was overweight. And when I got up to puberty, I did start putting on weight. And uh, a very well-meaning aunt of mine um, put me on my first diet. I was staying with her for the summer when I was 12 and put me on my first diet. And that for me was the start of that awful, awful cycle um, that so many of us would be familiar with. I can remember so well, I was 10 stone when I was 12, which 10 stone is 140 pounds, uh, which sounds like a lot for a 12 year old, um, but it wasn't massively overweight as I was, you know, tall, uh, tall 12 year old and um, that was my first diet I can't remember if I lost any weight on that diet but it started the cycle for me of dieting losing weight putting the weight back on with more 
dieting, losing weight, putting the weight back on with more. And that was to go on for four decades. I was on that particular cycle from the age of 12 to the age of 52. And um, when I eventually uh, surrendered um, to this program, and I successfully dieted my way up to north of 30 stone, which would be, you know, somewhere over 100 and, or somewhere over 420 pounds. Uh, that would have been, I don't know what my actual top weight was, but I know I topped 30 stone. And um, Lee, this might be the time just to put up the photographs. Uh, the proof, <laughs> the evidence exhibit, whatever, yeah. Uh, so most of these photographs, I think, were taken around, give or take, um, you know, 20 years ago, maybe. Um, I would have been in my early 40s. I know the one here on the beach with my friend Mary, that was when the year 9-11 happened, because I remember we were on holidays in Lanzarote. Um, when 9-11 happened, the one on top with the baby, that would have been my nephew uh, when he was shortly after he was born and he's about 24 now. Me cutting the cake was my 40th birthday. Um, me with the other two people, with a couple, I honestly can't remember, um, but I'm probably coming up to late 40s. And the last one there is me probably early, middle of the summer, middle of last year. Um, there or thereabouts. So we can take them down now, Lee. Uh, thank you. Um, so yeah, um, I never knew that I was a compulsive overeater and I didn't know anything about compulsive overeating. Um, I just thought there was something wrong with me. You know, I was morally defective or I was weak or, you know, I just didn't have character. I didn't have the willpower. Um, and I would have gone on all the usual diets, you know, the usual weight loss clubs of one sort or another, and at times have dieted in inverted commas quite successfully. You know, I could lose a lot of weight. There was a time when I could go on a diet and lose weight. And um, I never, ever, ever got to the goal weight. I was never able to stick with it long enough to get there, but I would have lost six, seven, eight stone on diets um, over the years, but invariably the day would come when it felt like someone turned the switch off in my head and I picked up the food again, and that was the start. I was back in the food. Um, and I would not have known that I had a physical allergy. I would not have known that there were certain foods that would trigger me um, into uh, craving and uncontrollable binging and my binging when I was active in my addiction was really industrial quantities of food I binged up to the point where one more morsel of food would have made me puke only when I got to that point could I stop I just had to keep putting it in and putting it in and putting it in to the point where it was physically impossible for me to swallow another morsel of food. And at that point I'd stop. Um, I was never um, bulimic, um, nor was I ever anorexic. But looking back now, I can see that my dieting days, particularly with some of the madder diets were restricting, you know, that I was very, you know, restricting very severely. Um, I would have lost 15 or 16 pounds in a week. No problem, you know, in those days when I could restrict. Eventually the time came when I couldn't and I just wasn't able to do it anymore. 
you know, um, but I just could not stop. Um, and I, this was the start of my recovery journey was, would have been sometime in my earlier mid thirties. Um, I went to an eating disorder a treatment program in a hospital. It wasn't a 12 step program. It wasn't, um, you know, a treatment center as such. It was the medical model, the psychiatric model. Um, and that started me on recovery in the sense that I was very fortunate that I met a psychiatrist who was in charge of that unit, who after I had been, you know, finished their course of treatment uh, about a year. I was still going to see him about a year. And he said to me, he really thought I would benefit from therapy. And I started seeing a therapist and I was to stay in therapy uh, for 10 years. Uh, and I'm smiling, you know, it never, ever, ever got to deal with my addiction, but it probably saved my life. Because for the first time in my life, there was someone I could talk to. And even if I wasn't able to be completely honest about what I did with food, um, I actually was able to be honest about other things. And I started to get some idea of what feelings were. Because up to that point, I would not have been able to tell you what a feeling was. I would not have known what angry was. It's not that I would never have been angry. I would, but I wouldn't have known that that was what was going on. I wouldn't have known what fear was. I was full of fear. I thought I hadn't a fear in the world. I thought I was the calmest, most serene, placid was the word. My God, Denise is so placid. You know, Denise never gets ruffled. She never gets angry. You know, she never gets upset. She's the nicest, most placid woman you could meet. And inside Denise was boiling, miserable, um, totally frantic. I mean, I experienced the craving and the urge to eat as if there was something inside me trying to claw its way out. And that feeling of being frantic, uh, I could not manage except by eating. And eating was what I did to numb it and to get rid of it. And of course, for those who um, are compulsive overeaters like me, you know that what I did with food and how that made me feel was much, much worse than the feeling I was eating on and trying to escape. But I was so caught in the disease that I couldn't stop. And I spent my 10 years in therapy and we are people of extremes and all or nothing. And it wouldn't be enough for Denise to be in therapy. Denise had to go off and qualify as a psychotherapist. At the time, I was a practicing lawyer and I did the training as a psychotherapist. And it really was a means of trying to deal with some of the stuff I hadn't dealt with as a child. I was never going to practice. And all I can say is might not have been in recovery, but higher power was looking out for me because I would have been a terrible therapist. <laughs> and the poor people who would have come to me as clients would not have got a good deal at all because I just was so enmeshed in myself. There wouldn't have been a hope. And eventually, and I, I I'm kind of conscious of the time and sometimes when I get talking I lose track and I, I can talk for Ireland. Uh, eventually through a series of circumstances um, I ended up going to um, 
uh, a treatment centre in Dublin just to, to meet them because I had heard that they, they had a programme that helped people who had issues with food. And I went and I was interviewed and the woman who interviewed me said she didn't really think treatment would you know, be of much benefit for me, but she told me about OA. And she told me there was an OA meeting close to the treatment centre, which was in Dublin, on every Sunday, and maybe I'd give it a try. So I went to that meeting and um, I met a woman there who told me about a meeting that was on in Cork. I come from the south of Ireland, the southeast coast of Ireland, and Cork would have been closer to me uh, than Dublin. She told me about a Sunday meeting in Middleton in Cork, which would have been a shorter drive and she said to come and so I did and I really considered that my first OA meeting and that woman who I still know and who's still um, very active in the program and in uh, Cork she really was the person who because she was so nice and so welcoming and so kind she was the person who really got me in the door and I started going to that Sunday meeting and they also had a Thursday night meeting and I started going to that and I would love to say I got it straight away. I would love to say I was one of those who walked into the rooms and the light switch went on and hallelujah, we were on the road. I spent six or seven years going to these meetings and not getting recovery, just not getting it. And now I can look back and see why, although I didn't know why at the time. The reason was I was not prepared to do what people who had recovery did to be recovered. And not only was I not prepared to do it, and this to me really speaks to the cunning, baffling, powerful nature of this disease. Not only was I not willing to do it, I didn't know I wasn't willing to do it. I thought I was willing to do everything. I thought, of course, I'll do whatever I'm asked to do. And I didn't realize that there was a part of my brain that was all the time making reservations, making reservations. Other people needed a sponsor. But, you know, once I, I'm very intellectual, I can get this myself. You know, I don't need someone else. You know, other people worked through the steps. But really, I could do this bit and I could do this bit and I could do this. But I didn't really have to bother with that bit because I didn't really need it. I was the exception. And so I spent those six or seven years when really and truly now looking back on it, I can say the only thing I did right was to keep going to meetings. That was the only thing. And I've often shared it since. There were two things that kept me going back to meetings. Apart from the fact that, you know, people were lovely and people were welcoming, you know, uh, you know, there was that sense of this was a place where I could come and be OK. And um, but the two things that kept me going, really kept me going back was one, I could see there were people who had recovery and I could hear those people share and I could hear it. in them. I could hear that these people had something. And that kept me going back. The other thing, and this was hugely, hugely important for me. The other thing that kept me going back was that there were other people who weren't getting it and who shared their struggles. If I had been the only person at those meetings who wasn't getting it, shame would have stopped me. I would not have been able to keep going. I would be eternally grateful to those people who had the courage to say, I'm in the food. I'm back in the food. I've broken my abstinence. I'm back struggling. 
because that gave me permission to say, well, actually, I'm back in the food too. And I've broken my abstinence and I'm struggling. Um, and so those two things, the honesty of the people who had it and the honesty of the people who didn't, kept me going back. Eventually, eventually, after the six or seven years, um, I reached that point, you know, the jumping off point where I just couldn't keep doing what I was doing anymore. At my lowest, I never attempted suicide. I don't think I was ever seriously suicidal. But I used to go to bed at night and I used to pray to die. I used to pray that I would get some fatal illness that would give me an honourable exit so I could be out of the pain without bringing the pain on my family of having committed suicide. You know, if God would just send me cancer, let me, let me go and everyone would be sorry for Denise, you know, but I wouldn't have inflicted the pain on them. And that's kind of, again, illustrates the insanity, you know, the absolute total and utter insanity of my untreated mind. Because it was almost as if I could give myself, my family wouldn't be sad I was dead. You know, that'd be okay. They could have that sadness, but they wouldn't have the sadness of me having, you know, pull the trigger or whatever myself. Anyway, I reached that point where it was, you know, desperation. And while I had been in the rooms more than once, very kind, courageous members had suggested to me that perhaps treatment might help. And I was absolutely not open to hearing that suggestion. Absolutely not. And eventually I reached the point where I went, uh, I remember the day very well. I was with a friend of mine who was in the in the fellowship at the time, it has since left, but um, I shared with her that I was absolutely desperate. I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. And she suggested, you know, maybe treatment. And thank God that day, that day I was open to hearing it. And within a fortnight, I was in the treatment center. Um, and that really was, I suppose, the start of my recovery. That's about nine and a half years ago now. That was the start of my recovery. I was the only foodie. I was in the treatment center with a lot of young men who were alcoholics and drug addicts. Um, and again, you know, some, some moments in that um, really stand out for me. One of them was kind of, I'd say, maybe towards the end of the first week in treatment. I was sitting there in the group one day looking around at these young fellas. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, these are kind of fairly decent young lads. Do you know? These actually are, you know, they're, they're pretty decent, you know, young men. Now, maybe they've done stupid things, you know, you know, maybe they've made mistakes, but they're actually decent. And hot on the heels of that idea came the idea, the thought, I mean, you know what, Denise, maybe you're a decent person too. Maybe you're okay too. Maybe you're fundamentally a decent woman too. And that moved something in me. That shifted something in me. Um, I finished the treatment program. At that stage, I was all in, absolutely all in. I had the money to do this once. I wasn't going to have the money to do it again. At this stage, I had uh, changed careers. Um, I was no longer practicing as a lawyer. And uh, while I was doing something, I was much happier doing. I was earning an awful lot less money. So I had the money for one treatment. It was this or it was nothing. Um, 
And the treatment centre offered, part of the treatment was a one year aftercare programme, which was mandatory. You had the option of a second year if you wanted to. Um, I did the second year and then I decided I'd repeat the second year. Uh, so I did three years because I'm not a person of half measures. <laughs> I did three years aftercare. But it stood to me because I drove down to that treatment centre every week and driving up in the gates and up the drive just reminded me. It reminded me of what it had taken to get recovery. And so I was in recovery. I had a sponsor and I was working the steps. Um, and I was slowly, and for me it was very slow, I was slowly um, getting physical recovery. You know, the weight was coming off quite, quite slowly. Um, and, and I would say as well, um, you know, my abstinence was not perfect during that time. I never binged again. Thank God I have never had to binge again. But there have been times when I have broken my abstinence where I have picked up something that I shouldn't and given myself a good fright. Um, but by the grace of God, I haven't gone back to binging. Um, things were kind of going along okay. And then COVID came. Um, and during that time, there would have been ups and downs, you know, there would have been times when I felt very well in my recovery. There would have been times when I felt everything was a bit stale, you know, and that something was missing, that there was something in terms of the peace and serenity that I saw other people had that I didn't quite have, you know. And, you know, we talk about the neutrality around the food. Never really had that absolute neutrality. And, um, you know, where I actually just didn't want it, where I was uninterested. You know, there was always a bit of me on alert. COVID came and meetings went online. And I started attending online meetings. And of course, I suppose I was in meetings with a lot of new people um, and hearing from people I would not otherwise have met. And my goodness, I was hearing people share and really hearing that there were people who had something that was beyond what I had in recovery, that there was something they had that I wanted. And it transpired that they, they were people who had worked the steps through the big book. And so I got a, a new sponsor and I worked the steps through the big book. And that has been an absolute game changer um, in so many ways for me. Uh, certainly it brought my physical recovery on to that next level where if I'm not quite not quite at that, you know, medically healthy body weight. I'm at a weight that I haven't seen since I don't know when, you know, probably in my very, very, very early teens. Um, and if this is it for me, I have a food plan, I stick with my food plan. And um, if this is it for me, you know, in terms of if this is what higher power has decided I'm to be in terms of weight, I'll say, thank you, God, I'll take that. Thank you, God. This will do me fine. The disease part of me always wants more. The disease part of me wants that extra seven pounds. You know, and if I got that extra seven pounds, the disease part of me would want man, another seven pounds, you know, because this is a disease of more. And that's the way I'm wired. So um, if I talk about, you know, what I did, I got a sponsor. I worked the steps. Um, and I live in recovery today. I absolutely today understand the nature of my disease. You know, the physical allergy and the mental obsession. 
I hadn't really got that. Today, I understand that. And today, for me, the recovery really, really, really is about the spiritual and the emotional. That is really where it's at today. Um, and that's really where the growth is for me today. Um, I, I take step one, two and three every day, you know, that there, you know, I'm powerless over my life is unmanageable. I have an absolute belief in a power greater than myself, whom I choose to call God, even though I have no, no, no idea what, who, who God is. All I can tell anyone is that through working these steps and doing my best to live in this program, God for me is love. That's really, that's, that's what it is. That's as close as I get, that whatever this power is, um, and I'm not particularly religious, but whatever this power is, it is a manifestation of love. Um, and then I have to turn it over every day to that. And for me, the only way I can do that is to come in. Because the only place I can connect with that higher power is when I come in. And for me, my step 11 is hugely important for that. So I have a very um, good step 11 practice where I do start my day every day with prayer and meditation. Um, I do my best throughout the day, you know, to check in. Uh, and connect back in with God because my head will take me off. You know, my head will take me off down the road. So, reminder to me. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Pam. Uh, my head will take me off during the course of the day and um, down some rabbit hole or other, a resentment, a fear of whatever, you know, a fantasy. I'm a great woman for the fantasy, you know, the mood altering fantasies. Um, I already know what I do when I win the lotto. I already know how my life is going to be when I meet the perfect man. You know, I already know um, what life is going to be like when everyone in work realizes how brilliant I am <laughs> and how I should really be running the show. So I can do all those mood altering fantasies. I have to come back. I have to come back in here and I have to connect with a higher power and do my best to do what my higher power wants me to do today. And I can't know what that is if I'm not coming in and checking and listening, you know, and talking to other people because my head will take me off. If I have a serious decision to make, you know, if it's something that, you know, um, is going to impact me or other people, I'll run it by my sponsor. I'll run it by another covered um, member because I absolutely can't trust my head, you know. I can't trust my head. Um, you know, we're promised in the big book of life, you know, that it would be happy, joyful and free, you know. And that is true. Uh, but there's a price to be paid. And the price to be paid is living in the programme and working the steps and living by the principles of the programme to the best of my ability. I operated for most of my life under the great illusion that um, I could never be happy unless I got every need met and had everything I wanted. That's what happiness was. Or at the very, very least, at the very least, I couldn't have everything I wanted. At the very least, I should be free of all pain and discomfort. 
There should never be anything painful or uncomfortable in my life. And today, thanks to this program, I know that that's not the deal at all. That's not the deal. That's not what I promised in recovery. The deal is that I get to choose how I will respond to what happens in my life. I never had that choice when I was active in my disease. Today I have the space to choose how I will respond. And can I respond in a way that is loving and kind to other people and to myself? And that's the deal. And I have a life today beyond my wildest dreams. You know, I have I have a wonderful life today. I, I, actually, I'm, I'm an awful baller. I start crying in a minute. Today, thanks to this program, the single biggest thing I have in my life is that I know today what it is to love. And I know today what it is to be loved. I did not feel loved for most of my life. And it's not that I wasn't, but I was so cut off. I didn't experience and I didn't feel it. And while somewhere in me, I knew that I loved people, I didn't feel it. And today I know how it feels. I know how it feels to love and I know how it feels to be loved. And that's priceless. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the place to stop. So thank you. Mm. I got emotional there myself. Thank you very much, um, Denise and uh, 